Today on the Matt Wall Show, there are 10 million jobs open in this country right now because employers are finding it impossible to coax the unemployed off of their couches. I want to talk about this crisis, and it is a crisis, and also share some of the stories from these business owners so that we can all understand what they're up against. If you think that our country has an entitlement problem, wait until you hear this. Also, an, ele- an elementary school in Atlanta is under fire for instating racial segregation. They literally had black classrooms and white classrooms, plus Larry Elder is running for governor of California. He's a reliable conservative, very outspoken, which is why his answer about trans bathrooms was a little bit surprising and disappointing. And the health chief down in Australia has warned the people of that country that they must avoid all conversation in public because conversation can be deadly. Now, I hate small talk as much as the next guy, but this seems to be overboard. We'll get into that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You may have heard that uh, something truly unprecedented is happening in our country right now. There are, at present, over 10 million jobs available. 10 million open jobs, a number higher than anything we've ever seen before. CNBC has more on this. They uh, report, quote, the number of job openings in the U.S. economy jumped to more than 10 million in June, the highest on record as the U.S. labor market continues a choppy recovery from last year's economic shutdowns. There were 10.1 million open jobs on the final day of June, the report said, up from 9.2 million in May. Economists uh, polled by Dow Jones were expecting 9.1 million openings. The jump came as the quits rate increased while the layoffs and discharges rate was unchanged, reflecting increased bargaining power and and employment options for workers. By industry, leisure and hospitality show one of the highest levels of job openings at more than 1.6 million. Healthcare and social assistance has 1.5 million openings. So those are the June numbers just now coming in. It's probably even higher at present. The problem, of course, a potentially cataclysmic problem, is that many of these jobs are open because the companies with those openings are simply unable to fill them. As of May this year, over 40% of small business owners reported that they were unable to find workers, find enough workers, that is. That was back when we had a then-record 8.1 million open positions. Seems very likely that the number is now well over 50%. And that's just for the companies that officially qualify as small businesses, right? There's no doubt and incongruity here. Because while all of these millions of businesses are not able to find people to perform the tasks necessary to continue operating properly and normally, um, there are right now 13 million people collecting unemployment checks. 10 million of them are specifically collecting from one of the three pandemic unemployment programs established back in March of 2020. All three of those programs are supposed to end in September, but that assumes that Congress won't extend them And my guess is that Congress will extend them just as the eviction moratorium was extended and the pause on student loan payments was extended. What all of this means together is that many Americans, millions, we can assume, are collecting unemployment, not paying their rent, not paying their student loans on top of the stimulus payments they received, all while they're surrounded by companies begging them to come work. Now, I was curious about those companies. I mean, what is it like to run a business in this climate, a climate unlike anything we've seen before, where all of your potential workers are on the taxpayer dole, suckling on the teat, as it were, latched on and refusing to let go? What is that like? The media is not going to highlight these stories, just as they weren't interested in highlighting the stories of property owners who are having their property stolen from them by the CDC. So just as in that case, um, I will highlight them myself. I put this question out there on Twitter yesterday and have received Hundreds of responses from business owners or people who are in charge of hiring for their companies. 
Uh, I think some of these answers are quite revealing and worth reading. So let's go through them and see what they all have in common. Gives you a good kind of, and these are different kinds of, uh, of jobs from all across the country. Gives you a good, good, good sort of cross-section to look at. So let's read some of these. Um, the first says, I have three job openings for custodial work paying $15 an hour, which I think is fair, and I live in Missouri, which is a low-cost state. Applicants have been demanding $25 at the minimum, which is ridiculous for that kind of work. Another says, I'm in the construction rental business. We cannot hire mechanics, drivers, or salespeople. I'm an inside sales guy. We've had one applicant this year who got the job by default. He wasn't even smart enough to get clean piss and failed, and failed his drug test. We're so short-staffed. Our sustainer service is minimal at best because of that fact. We can't hire. We have four open positions and have had them for months. No applicants at all. Another says, third generation in construction business in northwest Indiana. Demand is way up due to people flooding outside of Chicago, but there are no workers willing to work construction. We offer health insurance and 401k, but that's not incentive enough. We just do not have anyone calling for jobs. We're booked up for months and contractors are willing to wait because everyone is in the same boat. Another says, I have tried to interview 30 people that have applied for a job. They just don't show up for the interviews. Pay is never a reason because we don't even get that far. The ones that I, I have that I've been able to hire and show up have poor attendance and work ethic. It's brutal. I could hire two or three people right now. I've been trying for three months. Other people I know are in the same position. Another says, we own a small ca cafe. We cannot get people to work. They apply, then don't show up for the interview. We believe the application is just to show that they're trying for unemployment. If they do show, they want crazy money and other perks unheard of in the industry. It is across the board in this industry. Restaurants are closing because they can't hire workers. Our kitchen is closed. It's insane. Another says, we've been hiring physical therapists and ergonomists for our team. We pay $50 to $70, $75 an hour, so the pay has never been the issue. But so many of the applicants are cold, rude, arrogant, just plain not nice. My wife owns slash operates the business, and she has interviewed multiple people that have zero self-awareness, not to mention the interviewees that get upset because the business caters to women, and of course, there's no such thing as gender. Another says, family business employs over 1,000 people, worst labor market we've ever seen. Hard to find applicants, scary how many can't pass a drug test, work ethic and society is collapsing, demand for remote work are getting unrealistic. Another says, one, candidates are not applying at all. Two, a lot of candidates I talked to have not worked in a year or close to it, and they disclose that they have not worked because they've been on unemployment. And since unemployment has stopped, they're now looking for work, which is a candidate I would not want to hire. Three, I'm in the industry uh, entry-level pay. In my industry, entry-level pay is 13 to 14 an hour. A lot of candidates are wanting 16 to 18 an hour, and companies I work with simply don't want to pay that or are having to pay higher wages for entry-level help. Another says, my family has a distribution business in the automotive sector. It's been very difficult getting people to apply for $15 an hour jobs and even more difficult getting applicants to show up after phone interviews. Then if we get lucky enough to get a warm body with a pulse to show up for the job and we hire them on the spot, these new hires ghost us 50% of the time. We're revamping our comp programs throughout as we scale out the season, and I will be giving discretionary bonuses to those who earned it during our peak season, making every effort to retain those that keep the engine running. Another says, we have two units in Memphis, and I just closed out one to uh, one of the two to consolidate the staff. Next to no one is applying. We moved from $12 an hour to $15 an hour in the kitchen. Servers make $250 to $300 per shift, but still call out on a regular basis. We had four call-outs last Friday and five on Saturday. We're now skeleton at our original unit, and we have no idea how long it will be before we can find enough staff to reopen our second unit. Very few staff end up working their full schedule. Not one restaurant is fully staffed. The hotel across the street only uses uh, 200 of 450 rooms during the week and 300 of 450 on the weekend due to lack of staff. And another says, my husband owns a painting company, pays $20 an hour starting. The only workers he can find 
wanted to be paid under the table so they wouldn't lose unemployment. Okay. I could go on and on. I mean, hundreds of stories like this. That's just in my inbox. Across the country, there are millions of similar tales, and they all have certain common threads which connect them. Candidates don't want to lose their government welfare. That's the first priority. Um, They often make outrageous demands. They make little effort during the interview process and even less when they're hired. And lots of people can't be bothered to lay off the drugs long enough to pass the drug test. It's clear to most thinking people that, and, and another thing too, by the way, you notice there, a lot of these jobs are paying 15 an hour. Now we were told 15 an hour, that's the magic number. It's a living wage and everyone deserves 15 an hour. A lot of these places, they're paying 15 and they still can't find people willing to do the jobs. Can pay $20 an hour and still can't find people to do it. So it's clear to most thinking people that the immediate culprit and cause of this crisis are the government entitlements, which have been, which have given otherwise healthy and capable people the option to simply do nothing, attaching themselves instead to the taxpayer ship like barnacles. There are, of course, people who you know, fall on hard times and need help. There were millions of people during the pandemic who lost their jobs because of action taken by the state. And that's all one thing, right? That's one category. But living off of the dole should not be an available lifestyle choice. It should not be a permanent or indefinite option that anyone can avail themselves of, even when they could easily find a job. It's one thing for there to be a temporary resource to fall back on in a moment of dire need. And that's the way these programs were originally sold to us. If you were dumb enough to believe that that's all it would ever be. It's another thing when an able-bodied person can elect can make the conscious choice to be a non-contributor, sustaining himself through the efforts of contributors. Our system has always allowed far too much of that kind of thing, but with the extra welfare programs put in place during the pandemic, the problem has grown to catastrophic proportions. Businesses are now having to shut down because, again, they cannot coax the unemployed off of their couches. But the problem runs deeper than that. You know, it's one thing for the government to have these insane suicidal policies in place. It's another thing to have a populace so eager to take advantage of them. I mean, the sickness at the root here is whatever has made so many people willing to live this way. Whatever has made this lifestyle seem appealing. Because a healthy, well-adjusted, mature, right-minded adult would not want to sit around for a year doing nothing. Not paying his rent, not working a job. Such an adult would prefer to work for a living than to be pampered by the government. So the real problem is that there are fewer and fewer of those kinds of adults. Many people are satisfied to be unproductive, to avoid any and all work, to live a life that requires no effort, floating along aimlessly, going nowhere. I mean, it's one thing to live like that upon retirement, and even then it can drive you mad with boredom. But to live like that at the age of 25, having never contributed anything, having achieved nothing, having not even tried to achieve anything, that's another thing entirely. A healthy society would find few takers for such a life, given that it is so fundamentally despairing and pointless and dull and empty. But that's not the case for us. For many people, this is what they want. It's what they desire, which is to say they desire really nothing. But not an austere, humble nothing, rather an entitled, expensive nothing that they expect you to pay for. And that, I think, is the real sickness. Now let's get to our five headlines. 
You know, I really want to tell you guys about Rock Auto. You know, the thing about Rock Auto I probably have never mentioned before is that it makes it so that you do not have to go to the auto parts store, which nobody wants to do that when it's really hot out or really at any time. Uh, why do that? Why go through that whole rigmarole, as the kids would say, when you could just stay at your house or be wherever you're going to be and pull out your phone, go to rockauto.com. Always offers the lowest prices possible. They're not going to change uh, the prices. They're also, you know, this, this is about giving you the, the, the lowest possible price, which means that when you go to rockauto.com, um, you, you know that you don't have to shop anywhere else. That's the best price you're going to get. And they're a family business. They've been doing this online for 20 years. You can go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. The catalog is unique, very easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts that are available for your car or truck. You can also also choose the brand specifications and prices you prefer, which makes it a lot easier as well to browse through Rock Auto and find what you want than going and walking aimlessly around. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck and write Walsh in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know that we sent you. You know, one of my favorite things uh, about little kids is the way that they question things. Well, that could be my favorite thing and also my least favorite thing. It depends on the questions they're asking and how many times they ask the same question in the context and everything. Um, but the good thing with kids is their, their minds are always working and they're trying to figure stuff out. And um, you, you never know what exactly is going on up there until they open their mouths, as my four-year-old did last night while he was sitting on the couch. And... Um, and he, he turned to me and he asked, pointing, pointing to his older brother, he said, Daddy, if me and Luke switched heads, what would happen? And I said, well, I mean, you'd die, first of all. So don't, that's the first thing. And you'd probably make a heck of a mess in the process. So, and he kind of goes silent and he thinks about it. And then I start thinking about it too. And now, I'm, now, I'm, now my wheels are turning. And then I, I asked him, I said, well, okay, what if you did switch heads with him? W- would you now have Luke's body or Luke's head? Like, would, would, would giving your head to Luke mean that you go with your head? Or would it be more accurate to say that you remain with your body and now you just have Luke's head? You see what I'm saying? Very philosophical question. And, um, and he, he processed it for a while. And eventually we both agreed that he would probably travel with his head. But it's an interesting question. And then later on when I was putting him to bed and we're still talking about this, this question of uh, removing heads and everything, great thing to talk about at bedtime. And, it, you know, th- and things are finally clicking. And he goes, wait a second, Daddy. So, so I'm in my head? I'm in my bones in my head? And he starts knocking on his head like he's knocking on the front door, trying to communicate with himself. And then we, got, then we started talking about the mind-body problem and neurology and the soul. And it was all very metaphysical after a while. Um, I say we were talking about that, but it was like I was talking and he was just sitting there not understanding anything I was saying. But I did make sure to emphasize, putting all that aside, don't actually try to do this. Please do not try to take your head off. That's all. That should be the main point here. All right. Um, before we get into the, the big stories, I do want to show you this quickly at the top here. Uh, now that Cuomo has resigned, the people of New York are speaking out. And I thought that I saw this being passed around on social media. I thought this was interesting. Here's a clip of just some average citizens in New York sharing their thoughts about the news. Uh, And I thought they raise a a number of good points and they do so really eloquently. And so let's check that out. That Cuomo said we couldn't be outside last year. Where we at? Outside! What is your message to Cuomo right now? Rot in hell, you son of a Cuomo, you put pineapple on your pizza and you get no you're next, De Blasio. You're next. You're next. We on your ass, boy. We on your ass. 
If she say no, you gotta go! The Italians don't claim that kick Cuomo. We don't with him. We don't that kick Cuomo. Get the out of here. We got Trump and the fucking Silky on Union Square. Cuomo, don't you get away with the shit. When I see you, I'm gonna grab you by your fucking neck. We replacing Cuomo with Bobby Schmurda! Bobby for governor! Bobby for governor! They make a good point. They really do. Um, that uh, I, I, apparently Cuomo is not popular in New York. I guess we can summarize it that way. All right, let's. Uh, I don't think we need to analyze that any more than we already have. Here's a report from WSB in Atlanta about actual racial segregation in a public school in the city. This is the local news report. Uh, it's a little bit long. It's a couple minutes, but I think it's worth watching. Also, when we play long clips, it gives me a chance to drink coffee. That's the real reason we do this. But let's watch this. Go ahead. We've lost sleep trying to figure out, like, why would a person do this? Kyla Posey says she was stunned when she learned about classes segregated by race at Mary Lynn Elementary last year, a practice she says was put in place and condoned by Principal Sharon Briscoe. First, it was just disbelief that I was having this conversation in 2020 with a person that looks just like me, a black woman. It's segregating classrooms. You cannot segregate classrooms. It's, you can't do it. Posey says she found out the school was putting black students in two separate classes with two separate teachers. The white kids were placed in six classes with six different teachers. The parent says she found this out when she let Briscoe know she wanted her child placed in the classroom of a teacher she thought would be a good fit. Posey says the principal said that wouldn't work. She said that that's not one of the black classes. And I immediately said, what does that mean? Um, I was confused. I asked for more clarification. Um, I was like, we have those in the school? And she proceeded to say that, yes, I have decided that um, I'm going to place all of the black students in two classes. Posey says she insisted her child be placed in a class with white students. She says Briscoe explained her child would be isolated. And I explained to her she shouldn't be isolated or punished because I'm unwilling to go along with your illegal and unethical practice. The Posies recorded a call with an assistant principal where they complained about the segregated classes. The administrator confirmed it was the principal's decision and seemed to offer an explanation why the classes were set up this way. We have more black kids too, and then some of them are in a class because of the services that they need. We'd like to say that this is shocking, actual racial segregation in the classroom. It's about the most illegal thing, <laughs> one of those fundamentally illegal things a, a school could possibly do is uh, to racially segregate their classrooms and actually call them. There was no attempt to hide it. It wasn't like they came up with different labels for this and, oh, it just so happens that it worked out racially in this way. No, it's like, that's our black class and this is our white class, right? Um We'd like to call that shocking. I don't think we really can. I mean, we, we have gone full circle and we're back to this now. Rake, racial segregation sort of approached from the opposite direction now, though. Um, 
where now it's a matter of we're going to segregate because we're trying to get the white kids away. Racial segregation in the Jim Crow era was the other way. We don't, we don't want, we don't want the, the white people to have to deal with the black people, so we're going we're to put them over there. Now it's just that in the reverse. And I say reverse, which isn't to say that it's reverse racism, because, of course, there's only one kind of racism. If you're a person and you, and you uh, think that people of another race are inferior, uh, then that makes you a racist no matter what race you are. But this is the reverse approach to racial segregation, reverse from what it was, you know, 100 years ago. Um, and so that, that's not a surprise. This is the direction we've been headed. They've been doing this kind of thing in, in universities and in college colleges for a while now. Maybe not that explicit, like we're going to have a white class and a black class, but or we're going to have a black-only space where you know black people can get together or, or people of color, BIPOC, can all get together and we don't want white people intruding on that space. We've been doing stuff like that in colleges for a while now. So this is where it's headed. The, if there's anything sort of surprising here, um, it's that the, the principal, again, made no, no attempt to hide it. And so she assumed that everybody was okay with it. The, the mother talking to the principal, and the principal says, oh, yeah, it's our black class. And the mother has to say, wait, wait, wait what? The what now? Our black class. What's the problem with that? And based on this report, now, maybe there were other parents who were upset, but it, 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 if, if there were, it's, they seem to be in the minority. It's mainly this mother who's objecting. Which means either the other parents didn't care and were on board with it, or they never heard about it. I don't know which would be more disturbing. There could be some combination of the two. That tells you something about public school. That's why I'm always harping on this. You send your kid into a government building for seven, eight hours a day. You're not going to know everything that you're not going to know almost anything that happens. You're only going to know what your kid tells you. And especially when they're younger, they're not going to tell you a whole hell of a lot. Now, I get home from school and, and I, I get home from work and I sit down with my kids. And I always ask them, what'd you do today? How'd it go? Like, I want to hear about their day. And uh, they, they, they never have a whole lot to say. Like, they'll, they'll home in on one little detail. Like, yesterday I came home, I asked them how to go today. And the only thing they told me, they were very excited to tell me, but the only thing they told me about was that they found uh, a deer skull in, uh, in a creek near our house, which is very exciting for kids. I, I, don't, I don't blame them, but that's the only event from the day, and everything was about the deer skull. For a kid, that's the only thing that matters, right? So when I hear from parents and, and they say, oh, you know, it's all, as long as you're in, in, in a conversation with your kids and you have an open line of dialogue, you don't have to worry about it because they're going to tell you what's going on. And, no, they're not. When they're very young, they're not going to, the things that you know are important and that you'd like to hear about, they don't know that that's important. I think the kids who are racially segregated, they don't understand. They don't know the history of this, of racial segregation in the school. They don't see a problem with it. They might not have even told their parents. So the things that you know are important, your kids don't know that. So they might not tell you. And then as kids get a little bit older, and even if they do know that something's important, they might not want to tell you because they don't want you causing a, a stink about it and, and all these other things. And also they're being conditioned by the school to think that these things are okay. So you can't rely on that. Another argument for, well, it's an argument for homeschooling as always, also an argument for, for, uh, for uh, cameras in the classroom. 
so that you could actually see that happening when they segregate the classrooms by race. As we come full circle back to racial segregation, this is a tool. You know, race, um, any kind of tribalism is, is a tool for those in power. A very effective tool, as we've seen, to manipulate and exploit and control people. And um, it has proven, this, this, this tool has proven far too alluring to those who are in power now. From the federal government all the way down to the school systems. It's far too alluring. So they're exploiting it. There was, there was a, a, what we now have to call, unfortunately, a brief moment in time in, this hist- in, 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 in history. But I can remember going back to when I was a, in school in the 90s where we had something like racial harmony. It wasn't perfect. Nothing is ever going to be perfect in a human society, but it was as perfect as you could hope for it to be, probably. Where race was, was not something that I remember talking about or focusing on as a kid. We didn't talk about it much in school. We were all kids going to school, didn't really think much about it. You notice the differences, you don't think about it, you don't dwell on it. You don't see anything particularly significant about it. And that was the state of affairs for, you know, a couple of decades maybe. Until the powers that be said, no, this is a tool that is way too useful. And now we're going back to how it was before. Okay, next we have Larry Elder, who's a well-known conservative talk show host and author and commentator. He's running for governor in California. I like Larry Elder. I should tell you, I admire Larry Elder. Um, and I was excited to, to hear that he was running for governor. Much better option than, than Caitlyn Jenner, which isn't saying much admittedly, but still. And uh, I, I was happy about that. But I am not happy about this, and I do not like or admire this. Here's his answer when he's asked by someone about uh, the trans bathroom issue, and here's what he says. Um, so let me just make this personal for a second. My sister is transgender. She's lived her life as a woman for many years now. So would you not allow her to use uh, the woman's restroom? Uh, if she is a, uh, made, a, a, made a transition from being a male to a female, uh, a, a transition uh, that has been done by, uh, by whatever medical uh, intervention there is, I see no reason why she ought not be able to use whatever bathroom she identifies as. Well, as long as they've, as long as they've medically transitioned, then of course. Now, you could say he's running for governor of California. He's got to play the game a little bit and he's got to toe the line. Um, but I don't buy that. Also, trying to draw a line here doesn't make any sense at all. Like, either this is dis- determined biologically or it's not. Either we're, we're determining, determining men and women biologically or, or we aren't. And if you're going to say, well, if you get the surgery, then you're a woman. Well, that means that, that biology has nothing to do with it. Why even get the surgery? Who, who cares if you have it? What does a surgery mean? Okay, not to get too graphic, but in the surgery, um, if when a man, quote unquote, becomes a woman or in, in, the, in the parlance now is, is affirmed as a woman, um, what they are doing is they are mutilating his male genitals 
to form the visual approximation of 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 what a uh, what what uh, the, the female genitals look like. That's it. That that doesn't make you a woman. It doesn't make you any closer to a woman. Okay, it does not does not bridge that gap even a little bit. You have not you have not built even you know any part of the bridge because you can't. The chasm, there is a chasm between man and woman, and it is impossible to cross over it. You can't. You can stay on your part of the chasm, kind of looking over to the people on the other side and try to make yourself outwardly look like them, but you're still on that side, and you'll never get to the other. That's what I would say, anyway, as someone who believes in science and truth. Either that, either what I'm saying is correct or not. And if it's not, who cares about the surgery? Which is why we're seeing the the other side of this equation, the trans activists, that's the direction this is going. Where they are de-emphasizing surgery more and more. Not to say you shouldn't get it, go ahead and get it if you want, but it doesn't matter if you do. Like we used to define this. It it used to be you were a pre-op transsexual or post-op. And if you hadn't had the surgery yet, then you're pre-op. It was just kind of assumed that that's that's what you're going to do. That's part of being, of, of, of having that identity. Now it's, who cares? You can maintain all of the normal physical features of a man. You can keep dressing like a man. You can look like a man, sound like, but it doesn't matter. But you'd still be a woman. So this line in the sand he's trying to draw here is just that. It's a line in the sand. It can easily be erased. It, there's nothing firm and, and, or solid here. And he's also using the preferred pronoun, saying she and her, in referring to a male. Um, If that is what is required to be the governor of California, then it's not worth being the governor of California. If in order to get a Republican in as the governor of California, we need to adopt the left's left's view of, of sex, and biology, then we sh- then it's, it's not worth it. What we have to give up, it's not proportional. So we give up our grasp of reality and we say to them, okay, you're right about this really fundamental issue. And as the reward, we get, we get to have a Republican governor of, of California for a few years? How does that work? I mean, long term, What's the long-term benefit of that? How does that trade work? I'll tell you something. The left, will they'll take that trade all day. They'll still oppose any Republican who runs for, for governor, but they'll take that trade. Sure, you're going to give us, you're going you're gonna to give us the truth. You're going to give up truth for us. And you get to have a Republican governor of California for a few years until they're replaced by a Democrat, which eventually they will be. A Republican governor of California, by the way, who, who can't really do anything because no one else is on his side. He's, he is still overseeing a, a, a state that has gone completely insane. And his ability to hold back the tide of insanity is very, very limited. And even if he can do it, he is only holding back the tide. He's not stopping it or reversing it. He can't do that. It's not worth the trade. And, I, and I've gotten to a point now, like I said, I like Larry Elder admire him, but I, uh, 
this is this is not this is not tolerable. As a conservative, you need to hold the line on this, or what use are you to us if you're going to give this up? But every day, it's another person. It really it really feels like invasion of the body snatchers in more ways than one. You wake up and another person who you have known, or at least known of, who you thought you knew, you thought you knew what they were about, you look at them and they've got this look in their eyes and you're like, what happened to you? We lost you too. What is going on? Every day it's another, what was once a, a firm and reliable conservative standing up there using preferred pronouns, saying she and her in reference to males. Very sad situation. Okay. Uh, I want to, I, I, here's a clip of a, of a school board member in Oklahoma. And I want to play this for you because after my experience at the school board here in Nashville yesterday, um, I, I have realized that what you're about to hear here is not uh, an outlier because this is exactly the kind of thing I heard as I sat there in the school board meeting, listening to one pro-mask parent after another get up there. I heard stuff exactly like this, almost verbatim, over and over and over again. Let's take a listen to this. I think if anybody's going to flee to virtual school, it needs to be the maskless. I don't think any parent with, a, with an asthmatic 6-year-old, 8-year-old, or 12-year-old should have to make that choice that their child can't go to school because some other kid is going to spread a germ that could kill them. Just goes all over me. I would like to find a way to stand up as a district and get our surrounding superintendents to stand up with us and protect our little kids. It's insane to send five and six and seven and eight all the way up through 11-year-olds that don't have a choice about vaccine, to sit in a classroom where people can spread a deadly disease and not even know they're sick, and not even know that in three days they're going to be sick, but they're spreading it today because they, that's the way it works, this disease just makes me furious that we're in this position. If I were a parent of a young child, I don't know what I would do. But I don't think we should put our parents in that position. And if there's any way between now and the beginning of school that we can get this changed, I hope we can. Because it's just not okay for kids to commit murder by coming to school without a mask. Commit murder by coming to school without a mask. It would already be irrational and incorrect to say that, oh, a kid coming to school without a mask poses a potential threat or danger. That's already way overboard and not, tr- and not correct. For all of the reasons that I have, have given about the reality of COVID and its effect on kids, which is very, very minimal. Um, but now we're saying oh, they, they're der- they are murderers, accusing the kids of being murderers for not covering their faces. I think that school board member did apologize uh, and try to backtrack a little bit, realizing that her phrasing is is shocking to any rational person. But she said what she said, and she believes it. And like I said, I I heard almost this verbatim. No one used the word murder in reference to the kids, but I, I did hear things like, your kid's going to kill my kid if they don't wear a mask. Very, very, very similar. Without the word murder being used. We talk about segregation in the schools and tribalism and how those in power, it, it's, it is so alluring to, to, to divide people by tribes and because it's much, more, it's much easier to exploit us that way. 
Well, this is another version of it. Another version of, of segregation. The masked and the unmasked. Vaccinated and unvaccinated. And the unmasked, unvaccinated, they are now the cause of all of society's problems. They are murderers. They are directly killing you. They're a threat to your children. They're going to murder your children. This never results in anything bad, does it? This never heads anywhere ugly, does it? When you take an entire portion of the population and you turn them into the causes of everything that ails us, by their very existence, simply by leaving the house, they put you at risk. They're going to kill your kids. That doesn't lead anywhere ugly, does it, historically? Oh, it works out fine. Um, and what about this from the post-millennial? A photo from a Pride event in Holland won an award for being iconic and the most aesthetic. It shows a small child smiling while surrounded by men in bondage gear. You can see the picture there. Uh, the men in uh, harnesses and shiny black hot pants are gathered outdoors on a porch where a little girl plays with a swing set. The post-millennials Andy No shared the photo, saying that a woman claiming to be the girl's mother had opened her home for the men to change. The photo was called Celebrating Diversity and was snapped by Jan Van Breda. Um, this photo from a Pride event in Holland has won an award from the organizers for being iconic. Yes, this is iconic, aesthetic, beautiful. We're told, comfort ourselves by saying, yeah, this is Holland over there in Europe. They're way crazier than we are. Well, no, this is, this is, this is already here as well. All the pieces are in place. I mean, this is, of course, the outright uh, promotion of pedophilia. And all the pieces, pieces are in place in our culture as well. All the pieces are there because, for one thing, we're saying, uh, you know, we, we have to be supporting and tolerant of all different lifestyles. As long as it's consensual, we, we have to support it and we have to even not just not support it or tolerate it, but celebrate it. And that, that thing of consent, that was the one thing. As I've said many times, we've, we've hinged, we've gotten rid of all notions of sexual morality. The whole sexual moral code that has guided most of mankind for millennia, we've tossed out the window, but we've, we, we have hung on to this one thing, the C word, consent. And that's all that matters. And we know that consent does matter. It is very important. It is one of the fundamental um, you know, moral prerequisites, but not the only one. And the, the thing is, you don't, if, if we're talking about love and devotion and human dignity, if we're bringing that into the equation with human sexual relations, then we don't even need to talk about consent because that comes with it. But we've thrown all that out. Who cares about love? Who cares about devotion? Who cares about human dignity? None of that matters. Obviously, these men here, they don't care about their own dignity. A lot of times, these pride events, celebrations of pride, but also a celebration of a lack of dignity. Men walking around like that. No shame whatsoever. A celebration of shamelessness. So that all goes out the window. The only thing we have left is consent. And I think most people assume or hope that, well, because we have consent, that's going to stop the train from going any further than it already has gone uh, because 
children cannot consent to sexual relations. And so that's why we're not going to see the normalization of pedophilia. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, we're also being told that children can decide their own gender from the age of three. They can make these uh, kind of profound, lifelong changes and choices for themselves. Choices that are are not just lifelong and, and profound, but also that deal with their sexuality. They are fully equipped at the age of four to make those choices. To consent to those choices. It is not a far leap before the people who are saying that also say, well, they can consent to change their gender at four. Maybe they can also consent to sexual relations. Not a far leap. We're already seeing that start to happen. And um, it will become more explicit in the years ahead, much sooner than I think most people realize. All right, let's move now to reading the YouTube comments. Uh, this is from The Lonely Dragon says, You know you've screwed up when you see when you draw Matt Sweet Baby Gang Walsh himself to a public meeting to yell at actual supposed humans. Well, I don't think I yelled at them, did I? Well, I yelled a little bit. I was speaking forcefully. Maybe lapsing into yelling, I'll, I'll admit. Um, John says, That was absolutely flawless. I've never been more proud to be a member of the Sweet Baby Gang than I am now. Everybody give it up for the Sweet Daddy Walsh. That's my sweet daddy. Uh, you know, I this the sweet daddy thing is, it is stuck. I, I I hate to say it, it maybe it's run its course. I don't, I don't know how much longer I can see because it, the other problem is that the comments that say things like this, that's my sweet daddy. They're always fra- they're always they always have names like John, Bill. Hey, sweet daddy. It is getting it's getting a little bit disturbing. But thanks for the support anyway. Um, Anna says, thank you, Matt, for giving us the proof that you wear skinny jeans. Stop that. Those were regular boot cut jeans. Okay. That's it. I'm going to start, stop the skinny jean rumors in its tracks right there. Uh, communist Mal says, those are the skinniest jeans I've ever seen on a dude. That's not true. I I mean, have you ever seen jeans on a dude at all? Because those are, those are normal jeans. The first time you ever seen a guy wear jeans. Let this not be the focus of the school board speech. Okay. Um, and, uh, Nathan says, based on his fast paced raving and ranting, I would offer a diagnosis of my own, especially in light of his gleeful tone on how as a taxpayer, he's going to make sure that the captive audience at the meetings will be forced to listen to him many more times in the future. Narcissistic personality disorder is a disorder in which a person has an inflated sense of self, self-importance. Matt, do you bring up the fact that no one had died of cholera in years to rail against handwashing policies? Do you know how dry and damaged your skin gets if you have to wash every time you go to the bathroom and get dirty? Please come after the true threats. Okay, Nathan. Uh, uh, So I'm going to try this again here, okay? You say that wearing a mask is like washing your hands. A basic, ordinary hygiene method, right? That's the comparison you're making. Okay. Then, Nathan. Why didn't you ever wear a mask until 18 months ago? I'm assuming you didn't. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you're the one person in America who actually did, prior to 18 months ago, walk around every day in a mask. I'm going to assume that you didn't. And now you're saying, oh, it's just like wearing a mask. It's, no big, or it's just like washing your hands. It's no big deal. Why didn't you do it before? Did you not know that masks existed? 
Did you not know that medical professionals use them to, you know, stop themselves from uh, spreading germs or coming in contact with germs? Did you, did you not know any of that? It, it, like, is there anything that's happened with masks in the last 18 months that was really enlightening to you? Did you learn anything about masks that you didn't already know? Because I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's not the case either. So you knew the masks existed. You, you knew what they did, what, what uh, service they are supposed to perform. Um, yeah, COVID wasn't out there, but you knew that many other uh, pathogens and germs and so on were, were, and viruses were out there. Airborne viruses, the flu, other things. Many of those may not have been as deadly to you as COVID, but they're still out there. And you could get infected. And you say that wearing a mask is no big deal. It's like washing your hands. So why do you do it? I'm not going to give you any, I'm not going to give your answer for you. It's not a rhetorical question. I really want to know. Because I've been asking this question for months and I can never get anyone to answer it. All the people who say wearing a mask is no big deal. It's the most self-evident thing in the world. Of course we should do it. It stops us from getting sick. So on and so on and so forth. Why didn't you do it before? Give me an answer. And if you're going to tell me it's because you didn't know basic facts about masks before 18 months ago, then that means you're too stupid to take seriously. If you give me any other answer, then it's going to seem like you're a hypocrite. So I think you're kind of in a bind here, but I'd love to see what the answer is. Um, Michael Cash says, does Ben Shapiro have a new book out? I watch you every day. Just curious. Uh, I'm not sure, but let's find out right now. And it turns out, yes, Ben Shapiro does have a book out right now. It's called The Authoritarian Moment. And uh, it is a book that uh, it, it could not possibly be more timely, especially as we head back into lockdowns and mask mandates and everything. We know that we're living in an authoritarian hellscape, but how do we get to this point? What do we do about it? Those are the questions that Ben Shapiro tackles so eloquently in the authoritarian moment, which is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other major bookseller. So you go get your copy right now. Also, after you do that, it's no secret that Candace Owens knows how to light up Twitter with her conservative takes. But if you haven't heard She's now opening her studio to one lucky VIP winner. If you sign up now as a Daily Wire member with code VIP, you'll get 25% off your new membership and be automatically entered for a chance to win a trip for two for you and a guest to the Daily Wire studios to see Candace live. Not only will you meet Candace, you'll get an inside look at her studio, front row seats to watch her uh, on her show, Candace. And it's just a great deal all around. So to take advantage of this, all you got to do is become a new Daily Wire member at um, dailywire.com slash subscribe, where you can use code VIP and get 25% off, which will automatically enter you for a chance to win the VIP experience. But wait, there's more. We've got a lot to celebrate here at the Daily Wire, including the success of our newest podcast, The Morning Wire, intent on supplying Americans with a daily dose of nothing but the facts. It's been topping the Apple and Spotify charts since its recent release because it's the only daily news podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to bring you the news you need to know, we need your help to make sure that this gets out to more and more people. So subscribe and start listening now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. And also, no, that was just it. Okay, we'll leave it there. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Yeah, I read a book a few years ago by an author by the name of Bill Bryson. Uh, excellent author, excellent book. It was called In a Sunburned Country, and it was all about Bryson's adventure down under in Australia. Uh, he, he describes a, a somewhat wild, unpredictable, but beautiful place full of deadly dangers, but also bold, outgoing, and often quite fearless, freedom-loving people. Over the last few weeks, though, you know, I, I've wondered 
what an updated version of that book might be, given recent events. Australia, as you may have heard, is in a full lockdown because of coronavirus. The measure it has uh, the measures it's taken are, are among the most extreme in the world, with the military being called in to enforce the rules in many of its cities, including in Sydney, which has had a total of four cases. Yes, four in a year. Okay, four cases in a year, and the military shows up. In fact, the whole country of 25 million is experiencing a a rolling average of two COVID deaths a day, two a day. Now, if I were to venture to do some math here, which is usually a mistake, by my, by my calculations, a total of 0.000008% of the population is dying of COVID per day. And that is enough to justify a military-enforced lockdown. And all of this while Australia remains a country absolutely chock full of scary, deadly stuff that can kill you. There are more natural dangers in Australia than almost anywhere else on Earth outside of maybe the Amazon rainforest. In fact, COVID has killed as many people this year in Australia as animal attacks typically kill in the same country. 266 people were killed by animals in Australia between 2008 and 2017, making about 25 or so a year. Uh, That's about how many have died from COVID this year in Australia. By the way, most of the animal deaths are from horses and cows, surprisingly, which means that it's, uh, it's not far from the truth to say that the average Australian should be about as afraid of livestock as he is of COVID. They might as well shut down the country and, and, and call in the military over a loose cow roaming the streets somewhere. But don't expect the authorities in charge of Australia to have this sense of proportion any more than the authorities in charge of the rest of the world have a sense of proportion. Here is the health chief of New South Wales, Dr. Kerry Chant, giving a masterclass in disproportionate responses. Watch this. We all need to work together. We need to limit our movements. We need to consider whenever we leave our house that anyone with us, anyone we come into contact with, could convey the virus. So whilst it is in human nature to engage in conversation with others, to be friendly, um, unfortunately, this is not the time to do that. So even if you run into your next door neighbour in the shopping centre, in the Coles, while you're at Coles Woolworths or Aldi or any other um, grocery shop, don't start up a conversation. Now is the time for minimising your interactions with others. Even if you've got a mask, do not think that affords total protection. We want to be absolutely sure that as we go about our daily lives, we do not come into contact with anyone else that would pose a risk. The virus is out there. Anyone can have it. Everyone is a threat. Everyone could kill you. Do not engage. Don't speak to anyone. Don't have conversations. A conversation could kill you. If your neighbor tries to say hello, shoot him in the face and then run and lock yourself in the basement. Your lives depend on it. Now, I listened to that and um, you have to understand, I am actually in favor of banning small talk. Okay, I'm in favor of sending in the military to stop people from having small talk conversations. I already do avoid having interactions with people. I already have adopted a policy of using lethal force on anyone who attempts to have a conversation with me. I already am unfriendly. I already am a fascist dictator. So this should all be music to my ears. In fact, I should be volunteering to go to Australia and use my expertise to help enforce these rules. But avoiding conversation due to a generally antisocial disposition is far different from avoiding it due to a suffocating fear that having a conversation will literally kill you. 
I can understand and endorse the former, not the latter. But the scariest thing here, as always, is not the insane rambling of Dr. Chant with the New South Wales Health Office. There have always been power-mad sociopaths in position of power. Inevitably, those are the kinds of people who typically seek positions of power. This is the case everywhere and for all time, which is why our system was, was not put in place to attract specially virtuous politicians. There is no such thing. But instead to protect us against the megalomaniacal idiots who would unavoidably end up in those positions. Unfortunately, that system hasn't been working as well in recent times. And in any case, that is not what scares me the most in this case. What scares me are all of the average people, however many millions of them, who do not see any problem with locking yourself away and avoiding all human contact, treating human beings as plague-carrying rodents for fear of a virus that has infected four people in your city in a year and killed none of them. Many millions in Australia and here and across the world have lost their ability to think rationally about this or most anything else. Talking to them feels very much like, like the conversations I have with my daughter when I've tried to convince her that there's no monster in the closet. I mean, her fear and her imagination override any rational analysis or investigation of the question, which is fine for an eight-year-old. I, I can literally open the closet and show her and say, look, see, there's, there's nothing in here. Okay, just mounds of clothes on the floor because you can't be bothered to hang them properly, as I've told you a million times. In fact, you know what? Maybe there are monsters under that mound of clothes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang the clothes so that monsters don't hide under it. How about that? Anyway, we've gotten sidetracked. But the, but the point is that, that children can be childish in that way, and that, again, is fine. It is not fine for grown adults. We live now in a world of adults cowering in fear because of the monsters in their closets, and all of those adults especially the ones running Australia, are canceled. In fact, the whole country of Australia is canceled. If you people want to be afraid of something, be afraid of the spiders in your country. You have spiders literally raining from the sky, threatening to crawl into your ears and eat your brain. That's a rational fear. Focus on that instead. In the meantime, you're all canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our new show, Morning Wire. On today's episode, vaccine passports are on the rise, the showdown between Texas Republicans and Democrats heats up, and the California recall election tightens. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire. 